Hello everybody, welcome to the Cyclop Podcast. We're a group of students at AUBG with an interest in psychology. The idea of the podcast is to discuss and learn about all sorts of psychology-related topics. For today's thematic, we will discuss the psychology of philosophical approaches uh, with a focus on stoicism. With me are Nastya and Alana. All three of us are psychology students with a large interest in philosophy as well. Ilana gave the idea for the episode, and both of us were immediately on board. She is going to go through her knowledge and experience practicing Stoicism. Uh, But before we do that, first I would like to give a quick definition about philosophical approaches. And what it is, is basically the study of of the fundamental nature of knowledge, reality, and existence. uh, Especially when it's considered as an academic discipline. In other words, it is an approach and a way to view life and the world in general. There could be a philosophical approach to almost anything of importance, such as happiness, ethics, and even the state of the universe we live in. Um, but Stoicism is mostly concerned with virtue ethics and the proper way to live your life, right? Yes. So the actual definition is that Stoicism is a philosophy of life that maximizes positive emotions, reduces negative emotions, and helps individuals to hone their virtues of character. So it's basically all about living a happy, virtuous lifestyle. Okay, great. Yeah, so Stoicism is one of the many philosophical approaches about the virtue ethics, but it's the, one of the earliest and one of the main ones. Um, and one of the most famous ones. But there's a lot of misconceptions uh, concerning Stoicism, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, so the main misconception is that Stoics are unemotional, they're not able to experience feelings, and they repress feelings. This is not correct whatsoever. While they may want to reduce the impact of negative feelings, they don't do the same with positive feelings. They accept them and reinforce positive feelings. When it comes to negative feelings, they accept them, don't repress them, but they simply try to act still with virtue. So they don't control their feelings, they control their actions. Thus, the misconception is that they're unemotional and joyless, which is not true. And uh, if you if you Google right now uh, stoicism, you actually find the well, the, the very first thing you find is the wrong definition, actually, which is, um, I mean, it, it just goes to show how often it is uh, used in the wrong way. So we're, we're going to talk about stoicism, actually, what it does bring to, to people and um, what you can gain through using this approach mm-hmm. in your li- way of life. So f- first of all, how did you, when did you start using uh, stoicism as a, I wouldn't say I started using it necessarily, yeah, yeah, but so reading more best. about it, it's been uh, three years. Like three years ago, oh, wow. I learned from a friend of mine about Stoicism's existence because they were Stoic, like they were proclaimed Stoic. Okay. And I was suspicious of that. How could, like a Stoic wouldn't say I'm a Stoic. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like that's not something that you could admit like that. Like I'm such a great person. Um, so. I started delving more into Stoicism to prove that they weren't a Stoic, kind okay. of, to understand what they meant, because I saw that they, they weren't. And so it was a whole game of trying to understand what it is. 
Uh, at the end, I realized they weren't, but anyway. <laughs> so I think that stoicism is great for people who struggle with emotional regulation. And I, I would, I would uh, say that I personally have had some issues with emotional regulation and stoicism has helped me um, understand how to navigate my emotions. Um, and the main practices are one of the things that stoics do is called uh, premeditation of adversity, premeditatio malorum in Latin. Basically, it is it consists of you sitting um, and meditating on all the problems that may arise, let's say, in a few hours or the next day. It's just about negative visualization, premeditating on adversity. For example, uh, tomorrow you have an exam and you fear that you may fail, fail it. You sit down visualize going into the room, visualize taking the exam, visualize um, the consequence of that and how, how you feel when you don't do so well. Go through the whole process, then when you receive the grade, and all of that leads you to be prepared emotionally if that, if that were to happen. And also to understand that sometimes, most of the time, it doesn't happen the way you actually think it would. So trying to have different um, scenarios. What if you fail? What if you don't fail? Um, this is something that Marcus Aurelius, one of the most important Stoics, um, writes a lot about um, in Meditations, which is his personal journal, um, Premeditation of Adversity. And other Stoics use this um, mental challenge to, to rehearse what's going to happen in the, in the future. So I think that's a great one. And I've tried to do that. Uh, it's just kind of difficult because you tend to get lost into negative thoughts. Mm -hmm. Like there is a difference between trying to visualize those things and accept what's going to occur and trying uh, and um, becoming anxious. Oh my God, but I'm going to fail. What's going to happen? Mm -hmm. So it's very difficult to master. Yes. It's a skill. It sounds very counterintuitive to me because it's like either one or the other. You're either daydreaming, you know, wonderful things, how they're going to happen, how you're going to succeed in everything, or you're, you know, you're anxious and you're thinking you're going to fail entirely. But for what I understand, you're kind of trying to mix uh, both, but doing it in the most realistic way, which sometimes is the opposite of what people are doing. They even go to the extent to which they meditate on losing a loved one. Mm -hmm. Like, they are meditating on death, dying, or something horrible happening. So it's very interesting because the first time I heard of this, I thought like you did, this is not, this does not sound like something that's going to work. Mm -hmm. It seems like it reinforces negative thought and pessimism. And nowadays we all want to be optimistic. Yes. But their idea is that while you're doing this, you're preparing yourself because you cannot be always optimistic. You're going to be disappointed. Things happen. Like all the time things happen that you don't want to. So that's why through premeditatio malorum, you know they happen, you prepare yourself mentally. And when they do, you will be able to act virtuously. Yes. And that I, I believe actually does make sense. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, it, it sounds counterintuitive. And it's sometimes even maybe the opposite of what... Um, some modern uh, theories would suggest like you should be always optimistic and things like that but it's i mean first of all that you can be still optimistic i guess it doesn't have to go against that but you also have to 
sort of visualize, even if the worst case scenario happens, that it's still going to be all right. And I don't know if that goes actually to another approach uh, that is used in stoicism. But they're, all, they're all a little bit connected. Yeah, decatastrophizing is a part of uh, cognitive behavior therapy and is used nowadays. So it's taken from stoicism, this yes. idea that everything, it's going to be fine even if something bad happens. And basically, you, you can ask yourself, what are you worried about? And how likely is the thing that you're worried about, um, how likely is it to come true? And then afterwards, if it does come true, what's the worst thing that, to hap that could happen? What's most likely to happen? And at the end, um, if your worry comes true, what are the chances you'll be okay? So I think that's one, that one is very cool. Like in one week, what is the chances you'll be fine if you fail an exam? In one month and in one year. And I always think to myself a year ago when I was worried about this exam, about this project, like right now I don't care about it. It's been so long. Like, mm -hmm. It doesn't affect me whatsoever. But then I was so anxious, I was so... And everything works out at the end. But doesn't the technique just give the floor to intrusive thoughts in the moment? Like not in the long term, but after or while you're doing it. Do you sure. not get confused by the, the technique itself? No, because uh, you, the intrusive thoughts may come, but you are doing it intentionally. So the way to combat intrusive thoughts is to evoke them intentionally and not to wait for them to come. That's intrusive. If you actually think about something negative, it's not intrusive because you are evoking it. So that's the whole point of decatastrophizing. You're thinking the things that maybe you would want to suppress and would resurface when you don't want them to. So that's why you want to have control over your thoughts in that way and to accept that there, there will be intrusive thoughts, especially in the beginning, but that's, that's okay. Like that's the whole point. How do you get over them when you start using the decadastrophizing technique? Mm, you don't get over them, you just accept that they're there and try to delve into, okay, I feel very anxious about this project. Is that based on reality? What could I do to prepare better for the project? And start rationalizing. Right. And I guess also understanding that the intrusive thoughts, I mean, they're there, but they're not necessarily like... It's again, you're realizing that even the worst case scenario is not truly that bad. Like, um, for example, the, the example or, or a similar example, you're, you're having a presentation tomorrow or even in one hour, five minutes, you're, you're super anxious. You're thinking that you're going to fail and et cetera. And the de catastrophizing, man, that's a hard, hard one to say, <laughs> um, tells you that, well, even if that is, even if you do fail the presentation in what a week, you will probably forget it in a month for sure. In a year, it's not even going to have any right. effect whatsoever. And I think that's also, I would like to stress that it's used in cognitive therapy mm -hmm. nowadays. It's a common, uh, common approach, which is very interesting because this is a, such a, such an old philosophy yet it's confirmed by research and is even used uh, nowadays. Yeah, and also I think what this is connected to is the perception of control with Stoics, because they want to focus on only that the things that they can control. Everything else is they're indifferent to. So the same thing with the pro project and the presentation. Yes, I feel anxious about what would the professor think? What would this happen? 
uh, what if this happened? But at the end of the day, what can I do right now to prepare? I sit down, write a script, whatever. Whatever is within my control, I do. The rest happens even if I don't want it to. So I can control what I can control and the rest I leave. That's the main thing uh, in Stoicism and, and as you had mentioned before in other philosophies as well, like the main yeah, yeah. thing. If you cannot control it, leave it. And this leads me to say that Stoics are indifferent towards things they cannot control, but they also have preferences. So there is something called preferred indifferent and dispreferred indifferent. So let's say wealth. What do you think that is? Uh, preferred indifferent. Yes. And why is it indifferent? Because it's something that many people cannot control, I guess. Mm -hmm. To a certain extent, like fully, you can yeah, control you can how wealthy you are. Yeah, you can be born in a wealthy family or not. Right. You can work towards it and it's mm -hmm. preferred indifferent over being uh, poor. But it's not a given, right? But it's not something that, cons uh, that determines how virtuous of a person you are. Mm -hmm. whether you have wealth or not you can be virtuous in both scenarios okay so that's why it's indifferent indifferent the indifference are those things that are not connected to being to leading a virtuous life and everything that is connected to leading a virtuous life is within your control that's very interesting yeah so everything outside of your control is indifferent that doesn't mean that i prefer to be sick than healthy because mm -hmm. being course. sick is this preferred uh, indifferent so popularity maybe would be a preferred indifference could be could be but yes. of course yes could be depending on your um on your priorities and some stoics differ from others slightly by saying that for example wealth popularity and all of the other uh, external things should be preferred indifference only if you use them to lead a virtuous life okay if they go if they um, are an obstacle to leading a virtuous life, then they should be dispreferred. So it's very interesting how some Stoics say that. Other Stoics say that... Um, so some Stoics say that if it's an obstacle, it should be dis dispreferred. Others say that if um, it does not help directly, it should be dispreferred. And then third say it doesn't matter. Like, as long as you prefer, you know, a lot of money or this car over the other car, it's fine. It's preferred indifferent. Okay, so it's about a, a sort of, an, uh, it's not supposed to be an ultimate goal. Either of those um, indifferences, whether preferred or not, shouldn't be the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal might be, or is rather, being virtuous. Yes, always. That's like the yes. main thing, virtue. Yeah, so it's all about either if those things help you achieve that, or um, even if they don't, if they still give you um, pleasure or happiness, then you can use them, you can um, strive towards them, but the, your main uh, focus should be uh, being virtuous mm -hmm. as a person. And then virtue boils down to uh, the four disciplines, the four stoic virtues, which are wisdom, courage, justice, and temperance. Temperance is basically moderation, everything in moderation. Mm -hmm. We always talk about balance in life and work, study balance and so on. So that's the temperance part. Justice is just treat everybody equally and don't harm people like it's something unjust is anything that inflicts injury or harms another being courage is about facing misfortunes which is connected to the uh premeditatio malorum being like it's difficult to visualize bad things that are going to happen but it shows courage and then 
how are you going how are you reacting to um disappointing events and misfortunes shows courage and last but not least is wisdom which is uh, the meaning of philosophy of wisdom and it's simply understanding the difference between what is within my control what is outside of my control and not getting so stuck into um things that are outside of your control okay and then uh there were four reds and the last one was just being sort of uh um bal uh, holding a balanced life temperance yes temperance yes not being um, too excessive it's the golden mean so you need all four to be in order to be a virtuous person Preferably, yes, but Perfect. even one of them is most the, more than <laughs> okay. many people would do. <laughs> uh, you mentioned that um, everything that allows you to lead a virtuous life is within your control, right? Yes. Um, well, wouldn't you say me. that in some cases, circumstances do not allow you to lead a virtuous life as you'd like it no. to be? So no matter no, what no the circumstances exceptions. are. Absolutely no exceptions in my view. No matter what circumstances, if you're sick, if you're poor, you you always have the control over yourself, like how you react. But then again, are you sick or poor? <laughs> yes. <No. laughs> right. Well, I'm just saying that uh, now I'm thinking of um, what, was, what was the book, the book about the Holocaust? Oh, which one? Uh, <laughs> you're getting in an interesting happiness. area. Uh, yeah, I remember it. I remember it. The happiness? No. About the happiness, you know it. No, as well. I oh, I've read it. Yeah. I read it last I've read year. I've read it as well. I don't even remember the name. Anyway. Okay. Well, you always can control your how you react to things. You cannot control the things. So your question: If there's a circumstance in which you cannot be virtuous, the only barrier is you to being virtuous. That's it. So you do not agree with. Maslow's pyramid of needs, your system of needs, you're not, from the point of view of a stoic, if you would consider yourself mm. one. The, I, I don't consider myself a stoic. Okay. Okay, then. <laughs> After my story with the other person who said they were a stoic, okay. stoic that never ends well. <laughs> but um, I was thinking of the hierarchy of needs, which is very interesting you're mentioning it, because I, the first time I saw it, I was like, this is not okay. Like, what's? I don't agree with this because I was thinking, self improvement or um, realization. What is? What was the self realization? Yes, actually, let's just explain very briefly what mm -hmm. the Maslow's hierarchy of needs is. Yeah. I I can't. Uh, so first, so well, can, can you needs. check? Yeah, you what... have the physical needs at the bottom. Yes. Uh, then you have the relationship. I think needs with your. Yeah, let's, let's just check. And then you have at the end self-actualization, which is what you were referring yes, to. Yes, so physiological safety, love and belonging, right. esteem and self-actualization. So that they go in that order in terms of priority. So your very first concern and the thing all humans should be uh, going for is uh, physiological needs, right. which is air, water, you know, the very basic so um, head, sort of like animal needs even. And then safety is, um, you know, safe so personal security employment resources health and and so on from to uh, love and belonging esteem and self-actualization with um self-actualization being at the top and being sort of after you've achieved oh others self-actualization is where you want to strive and put mm -hmm. all of your attention to. And that's where you're becoming a virtuous person i believe right yes. but i as much as i agree with 
the priorities type of uh, the situation i don't think that you need all of them to be a virtuous person so yes your priority may be physiological needs but as we said health and safety needs is a preferred in different but your goal is virtue so you can exercise virtue in even if you don't have some physiological needs met if you're hungry you can still act in a in a proper manner you're not going to just shout at people yell at people because you're hungry depending on how hungry that is <laughs> if you're a virtuous person you, yes I don't yes think, um yeah like if you i mean if you're very very hungry of an extreme exactly that was my point earlier because you know especially the three of us we haven't reached the point of an extreme mm -hmm. in terms of you know physiological needs for instance and so we have no idea how we would behave if we were put into that type of you know situation under you know either this or that circumstances well there's also i mean stoicism is about how you should act yeah, well right. maslow's hierarchy of needs it's not necessarily about how you should, but how but most how people actually happens. act, mm -hmm. which is a very, a very important distinction in this case. Mm -hmm. And it's from what I understand is if you, you, you can be incredibly hungry, you can be, you, you, you can still be virtuous, as Ilana said, even um, mm -hmm. in the face of uh, danger or something like that. Um, and it also... Um, an important distinction is that in different situations, you can sort of express more virtue or more virtue is required. You know, in a very basic setting where you're just talking with someone, there's not a lot of room to being virtuous. There's still some uh, room to not being virtuous. In mm -hmm. um, others where you have to save somebody, you know, save their life, then you the, the limit sort of skyrockets in terms right. of being virtuous. Um, and you don't have to be, you, you have to be maximally virtuous, but the circumstances sort of limit that. And wouldn't you say that when you face misfortunes, that's when most of the time virtue is seen or the lack of virtue is seen? Absolutely. So that's what Stoics say, that you can look at obstacles and misfortunes as an opportunity to exercise virtue. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The Happiest Man on Earth is a book. No, oh, man's wow. search for meaning. Man's search for meaning. Mine, mine was man's mine search. was the happiest man on earth. <laughs> but but it's again about meaning. the Holocaust. Yeah, and it's a it's the, yes. technically about um, like what you said about the physiological needs. They they don't have to be met. Even if if uh, right. somebody is oppressing you, you can still exercise virtue. Of course, there are limits to like the body's mm -hmm. capabilities. If you're in extreme pain and stuff. But most of the time, you can exercise virtue. And in, in fact, <laughs> oh, I, Marcus Aurelius, I think, uh, practiced stoicism in the face of death. Uh, right. I can't like. I hope I'm not butchering this, but I think the story, and it's an actual story, is that he was actually going to be uh, killed. Or no, it's not Marcus Aurelius. I think um, it was Epictetus. Maybe somebody. Yes, yes, died. yes. I don't think it's Marcus. Sorry, Epictetus was a stoic and was virtuous and uh even though he knew that he was going um to die and he you know he accepted death and he didn't fear it and this is a literal literal story and i think that's actually how marcus aurelius got into stoicism as well he was incredibly inspired um by his act of uh, of courage mm -hmm. and yeah. during the life when you're alive, you can exercise, you can practice memento mori, 
remember that you die. And that's something that I do. Like when it comes to premeditatio malorum and decatastrophizing, I'm not doing that so much in my life. But memento mori, sometimes it just comes to me that when I'm doing, for example, drinking tea or listening to like the birds chirping, and I'm like, okay, will I miss this? Because there's a quote from Marcus Aurelius. Will you miss, will death be feared? Do you fear, fear death? Because this moment will not be able to, you will not be able to experience. So for example, while I'm drinking tea, uh, I'm thinking, this is nice, I like tea. Um, I would fear death because I would want to experience this, but I'm not going to be able to. So little things in life become more colorful when you know that you will not experience them anymore one day. Okay. And it sounds pessimistic, but for me, it never makes me sad. I mean, maybe sometimes I <laughs> get into an existential crisis, but most of the time <laughs> it actually leads to something positive and I feel happy about my life when I know that it's going to end, like something's going to end. And also, you never know when the last time you're doing something is. This may be the last time that we're recording a podcast. All right, so right. we should get the best out of it. Yeah. From that perspective. And enjoy each moment and stuff. Yeah. Even the, the worst thing, like for example, a le lecture. This may be the last time you're in AOBG or whatever. It's just... <laughs> we can drop out any moment. <laughs> you never know. Yeah, I looked at you. And you never know when the last time you see a person is. Yes. I had yes. a friend uh, a year ago who moved to another country. And I don't remember the last time we talked in real life. Yeah, that sucks. And very, very <laughs> far away. Yeah, those things. Like, but then again, you don't remember the last time because you weren't focused on it being the last time. Exactly. So sometimes you can just think, this may be the last time and mm -hmm. see how you feel. Uh, for me, it has had great consequences to, to think about uh, meditatio, no, memento mori and to think about the last time. Yeah, I've also yeah. had, I guess mine's not that... Uh... Mine's a little bit more basic than that, but in working like I, uh, this summer I was in work and travel, and I don't, I wasn't, I knew that I wasn't going to return on work and travel again. I just my last year, so I wouldn't have the opportunity. So almost everybody I was speaking to, especially like the end of the, my summer, I knew that was maybe my last time ever seeing those people or speaking to them, and that puts a whole different perspective on everything. So you definitely um, are a little bit at least focused on uh, the time that it's happening. Mm. I do that in the theater. Actually, I think I do your first technique with the focusing on negative developments in the theater. But mm -hmm. it's like only when I need it for a specific role. But yeah, mm. uh, every time you get on stage, you start thinking that it might be the last time you get on stage. So you might as well break a leg while doing it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh, uh, okay. That's, that works for me as well. Yeah. I didn't know it was a stoic. <laughs> yeah, many things we... Uh, yeah, I you noticed, do them, I just and do then them you naturally. read it and it's like common sense and you're like, what? Memento Mori I did before I knew it was a thing. Yeah. And, and that, the other one was Amor Fati, just loving fate. Anything that happens uh, in connection to the fact that you can exercise virtue in, during misfortunes. Mm -hmm. So anything that happens is an opportunity to exercise virtue. Um, and Amor Fati is just love anything that happens. And yes, if you break your leg or like your partner leaves you at that moment, you won't be great. This is an opportunity for me to exercise virtue. 
Yeah, you I would don't feel think upset. Nobody feels this exactly. Way, so. You would feel some type of way, and it's probably going not uh, going to be uh, like a negative feeling. But the 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 way is to accept that feeling, and then to apply practices. And also, what the Stoics say is that you shouldn't wait until those things happen to start being a Stoic. You have to okay. prepare while things are going well. <laughs> Okay. Because then it, you're going to be prepared. It, it might also be easier to, well, it maybe it's harder to imagine, but it might be easier because, I mean, if everything's falling apart in your life, then it's hard to, it, it, it's a high time to, you know, try an approach like this, but it also will be very hard to, to sort of keep yourself together and actually start following such a principle. Wow, if everything's going all right, um, it might be easier. Mm -hmm. to do that yeah um, which one did you like the most premeditatio malorum which is premeditation of adversity memento mori specifically for death amor fati to love fate or decatastrophizing decatastrophizing i'd say mm -hmm. mostly because it's researched the most i believe but then again i haven't i, I don't think i've intentionally tried it so far so I've tried only the first one, which you pronounce so good in Latin, but I could never. <laughs> Thank you. So the first one, I'm going to refer to it. Yes, that's the first one. Yes. Uh, I've done this, but again, only for acting, not for personal reasons. So and maybe now, now we can start with the last thing, considering your experience with thinking of this may be the last time I'm talking yes. to somebody and doing something. That's actually one of the things I've done. Mm -hmm. I mean... But again, just for acting, because then you're <laughs> you're just believing that this has already happened or it will happen, and you're not feeling you're not acting it, you're feeling it. Mm -hmm. So, and what about you? Uh, which is my favorite? Yes. Catastrophizing. I mean, I've, yeah, it's like <laughs> D, I, D, I, I've, I've, uh, D is important. No, yes, decatastrophizing. Um, definitely, I don't know why. I, I just find it so intriguing. And this, as um, Nasty mentioned, there is research on it, and even sort of what goes in therapy, in a therapy session is going through your problems. Um, you know, the therapist would sort of follow through your problems and showcase that some of them or most of them, if not all of them are, are not really something you should be so concerned about. Mm -hmm. um, that it's not, it's not a real issue when you just uh, look at on, um, when you look at long-term and it's also, for example, it's also one of the most uh, commonly used nowadays. And, uh, uh, you know, a lot of the, for example, my father is now reading uh, a Carnegie book, who's one of the most famous authors of self-help books. And he was explaining to me, you know, some of the methods uh, said in the book. And what he was basically describing was decatastrophizing. Mm. Um, so you can find sort of in... In all sorts of media's uh, references to Stoicism, without actually directly saying that it's it's from Stoicism, or inspired from it, um, which I th I think showcases just how valuable it is as a philosophy to life. Right. Have we have we missed anything? Have uh, we covered most of what Stoicism is about? Yeah, we have covered the main practices and. The preferred, this preferred. Doctrines. Okay, great. Uh, so I think that will be the end of the episode then. Uh, thank you, Alana and Nastia, for joining.
I really hope you enjoyed the discussion. I hope you just had a good time. Uh, stoicism, I mean, I mean, you could make an entire podcast only on it. So we might do part two covering stoicism again. Uh, we'll definitely have a go at other philosophical approaches as well. Absurdism comes to mind. Um, but otherwise, thank you for listening. And I hope you tune in to our future episodes.